So two weeks ago, we began a new series on the book of Exodus. So let's start with just a two-minute summary of the story so far. So after 400 years of oppression, uh, God finally released his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, you'll remember the 10 plagues of Egypt, the, uh, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, etc., etc. If you're not familiar with these events then that is a very good reason to be reading the book of Exodus. And I'd always encourage you to uh, read in your own time whatever book of the Bible we're focused on at any particular time. So the Israelites uh, escaped from Egypt and they found themselves wandering in the Sinai desert, depending on God for their survival. They reached Mount Sinai, where God invited them into a unique and close relationship with him, and that the Bible calls this relationship a covenant. Up until this point, God hadn't really asked Israel to do very much. They just had to trust him. But now God gave them a whole set of laws, which included the Ten Commandments, and it was living according to these commandments that would enable Israel to represent God to the nations. So Moses spent 40 days on the mountain in God's presence, and then he's on his way down with the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And when he reaches the encampment, he finds that the people have already broken the first two commandments. They've made themselves a golden calf, and they're dancing around it in worship. God tells Moses that he is going to destroy the people, and he's going to start over with Moses, make Moses into this great nation. But Moses intercedes, he prays on behalf of the nation, and God relents. He changes his mind. He's not going to destroy Israel. Another time we'll look at what it is we're saying when we say that God changed his mind. It's certainly a difficult concept. But for the time being, suffice to say that prayer changes outcomes. And after this disastrous episode, Moses returns to the mountain Uh, to plead with God for the people of Israel. And that brings us to chapter 33, where we are today. And we're going to track this story under three headings. They all begin with P. Presence, penitence, and prayer. Presence, penitence, and prayer. Firstly, presence. The Mount Sinai experience was an exciting and important moment in Israel's history. Uh, Israel were, were about to take a massive step forwards Uh, with their relationship with God. Remember that human beings were always meant to live in God's presence, in close relationship with God. Uh, That relationship was fractured in the Garden of Eden when the first human beings made a grab for their autonomy. They decided to disregard God and define morality for themselves. They sinned. The rest of the Bible is about God's action to bring human beings back into a right relationship with himself. You recall God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him. Well, that blessing, of course, is the restoration of relationship and the renewal of God's presence. On Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with his people, the Mosaic covenant. His presence is with them. Moses had closer communion with God than anyone since Adam. It's a wonderful development, and it's a sign of things to come. It, it, it reveals the direction of travel. But then Israel, through an act of sin and folly, the worship of an idol, cast doubt on where, whether they are a people with whom God's presence 
can dwell. At the beginning of chapter 33, God tells Moses that he will honor his promise. Israel will take possession of the land that God has promised to give them. God always fulfills his promises. But then God says this. He says, I will not go with you. I will not go with you. This is a hammer blow to the Israelites. God's presence is not going to go with them. Think of the person that you most like spending time with. Could be your spouse or a friend, uh, whoever it might be. And imagine that you have two tickets to go with this person on a wonderful holiday to a destination that you've always wanted to go to. Let's say for argument's sake, you're going with a friend to Italy. And your friend knows the country well. They speak the language. So you're confident that you're going to have a really great time. Things are going to go well. But then the day of your departure arrives. And your friend tells you that actually they're not going with you after all. In fact, you've fallen out with your friend. That's why they're not going with you. You can still go on the holiday. but It's not going to be the same. There'd be no joy in wandering around uh, Rome or Florence on your own without the person that you'd been looking forward to going with. You'd feel lost, disorientated, and dispirited. That is how the Israelites uh, felt at the prospect of God's presence being withdrawn from them. Chapter 33 begins with Israel facing the loss of God's actual presence and personal protection during the remainder of their years wandering in the desert. Instead, they'd have to do with what the Bible describes as uh, an aid, uh, which presumably is some kind of angelic being. Uh, When a person you rely on for comfort and protection withdraws from you, it's perturbing, it's disconcerting. Uh, My family and I were at Dreamworld recently, and I managed to persuade the kids to go on the giant drop. It's that huge tower that uh, sends you plummeting back down uh, towards the earth. And the kids were up for it. Uh, They went on it, and they enjoyed it. Tissa's laughing, she wouldn't go on it. But the kids were up for it. Uh, They went on it, they enjoyed it. Uh, In fact, we were at the top, uh, and they leave you up there, don't they, for a minute or two. And we had quite a relaxed conversation. Caleb was pointing out there's a football match going on, and everyone was very calm. I wasn't so calm, because I I was the one who persuaded them to go on, and I was a bit worried at how they would react to this thing. Um, But uh, it it was all very calm. But imagine... If I told them just before we got on the ride, no, you know what, I'm not getting on with you. There is no way they'd have got on that ride without me. They'd have been overcome with feelings of doubt and fear. We'll multiply those feelings by about a thousand. And I imagine that's how Israel felt when they realized that God wasn't going with them. The idea of God withdrawing his presence is terrifying. And the, and the Israelites realized that God wasn't going with them because who they were as a people was so out of whack with who God was calling them to be. Which brings us to our next P, which is penitence. So we've had presence, now penitence. Penitence is more or less the same thing as repentance. If we're penitent, we regret our wrongdoing. It was interesting to hear Canon Kistas from Kenya two weeks ago describing how large numbers of people in his church fell down weeping because they were so sorry for their sinful attitudes. With such a passionate and heartfelt turning back to God, it's little wonder that amazing things are happening in that church. But before we look at penitence, it's important to recognize 
that there are three reasons why God withdraws his presence from the Israelites. Firstly, it's an act of judgment. God says to them, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. The expression stiff-necked is commonly used to refer to the Israelites' stubborn refusal to submit to God's ways. The expression comes from an ox that refuses to uh, be yoked, refuses to have that wooden crossbar put across its neck that enables the farmer to guide it in the direction that he wants it uh, to go. So you imagine that, that ox resisting the yoke, resisting uh, having that crossbar put over its neck in the same way Israel resisting God, resisting to uh, follow God's ways. And when we stubbornly refuse to obey God, God often says, okay, have it your way. And that is often when things start to go terribly wrong. Secondly, God withdraws his presence as an act of mercy. In verse 5, God says, if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. God is here saying, you are so sinful that if I draw close, you're going to perish. But God leaves the way open to repentance. He says, now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. Have you ever had a heated argument with someone and you found yourself getting so angry, but you've got the good sense to withdraw from the situation? You, you leave the room, breathe, count to 10. Well, God's withdrawal from the Israelites is not like that. When we withdraw from a heated exchange, it's usually because we don't want to blow our top and do something unreasonable. When God withdraws his presence from the Israelites, it's because he's agreeing not to give them their just deserts. He is withholding the punishment that they deserve. And that is the definition of mercy. Of course, God's ultimate act of mercy would come well over a thousand years later when he took the punishment we deserve upon himself by dying on a cross for our sins. The withdrawal of God's presence was an act of mercy. Thirdly, God is withdrawing his presence to bring the people to repentance, and it works. Uh, we've already seen the uh, effect that the withdrawal of God's presence had on the people or, or the, the, um, the threat of it. Verse 4 says, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. Now, it's not clear whether the Israelites were distressed because of their sin or because they feared the consequences of their sin. Maybe a combination of both. But what is clear is that they couldn't bear the thought of being without God's presence. The commentator J. Orr said this, there is still good in a heart that feels the withdrawal of God's presence to be a loss to it. There is still good in a heart that feels the withdrawal of God's presence to be a loss to it. So they repent. And genuine repentance is always accompanied by action. In this case, the Israelites uh, didn't put on any ornaments. It was a sign of mourning. Uh, but it was also a case of them putting aside the object of their sin. Uh, they'd use their ornaments, their earrings and so forth, melted them down to make the golden calf. So when they put aside their ornaments, it symbolizes them turning away from that sin. And when we repent, 
It's not just a case of saying that we're sorry. Repentance involves taking positive action against our sin. For example, if you repent of damaging your body by smoking, then that repentance might include uh, getting rid of, rid of any cigarettes that are remaining in the house. Uh, if you repent of viewing pornography, then that repentance uh, might involve getting accountability software on your devices so that a godly friend can see what you're viewing and hold you accountable. If you repent of making money and wealth an idol, then that repentance uh, will include finding ways to live generously. Genuine repentance always requires action on our part. It's very easy to say that we're sorry. The hard part is demonstrating uh, that we're sorry by turning away from the sin that we're repenting of. That's what repentance means. Reading this passage raises a question, though, doesn't it? Does God withdraw his presence from us in order to bring us to repentance? Well, to answer that, I think we need to clarify what God won't do. He won't withdraw his presence from believers as an act of judgment. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not in the same situation as the Israelites because Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself. Jesus has died for our sins. Those who are in Christ Jesus are declared not guilty. And for that same reason, God will not withdraw his presence from us as an act of mercy. God is not tempted to destroy us because of our sin. Jesus came to destroy sin and save us. But all of us have times when we feel distant from God, and it can feel like God has withdrawn his presence from us. Well, when we feel like that, there's normally, maybe not always, but normally one of two things going on. Either God is with us, and we're just not aware of his presence, or else we've withdrawn from God, and God is waiting for us to return to him. Sin makes us feel distant from God because sin is literally turning away from God and walking in the opposite direction. So next time we feel that um, maybe God is, is, is not as close to us as we'd like him to be, then may, it might be worth just examining ourselves and saying, well, is there any persistent, unrepented sin uh, that's not been dealt with, that's getting in the way of our relationship with him? To say that Israel's idolatry was getting in the way of their relationship with God is an understatement. But Israel reached the point of genuine repentance. They set aside their ornaments, but more specifically and more significantly, these events completely transformed Israel's prayer life. And so we come to the third P, prayer. We've had uh, presence, penitence, and now prayer. Moses pitched a tent, probably his tent, outside the camp some distance away, the tent of meeting, the place where Moses and the Israelites went to meet with God. And this is the first step towards restoring God's presence with his people. The tent of meeting was later replaced by the tabernacle. It's kind of like a mobile temple. The tabernacle was replaced by the temple itself, which was constructed under the reign of uh, King Solomon. Uh, when Jesus came, he superseded the temple. Jesus was God living among us in bodily, physical form. 
When Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to live within his followers, his, his spirit dwelling within us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? And then when Jesus returns... He will dwell amongst his people in a renewed and restored creation. Revelation uh, 21 verse 3 says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. In other words, there'll be a return to God's original intention. You remember how Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Do you see the trajectory of God's presence uh, with his people? It's taken us back to that same level of intimacy. So you have the Moses, uh, uh, God meeting with Moses on the mountain, then the tent of meeting, then the tabernacle, then the temple, then Jesus, who is God incarnate amongst his people, then the Holy Spirit living within believers who become temples of the Holy Spirit. The church represents God's presence uh, in the world. And then when Jesus returns, it'll go back to how it's meant to be with God dwelling amongst his people. The Bible takes us uh, from fractured relationship and withdrawn presence to restored relationship and reinstated presence. And we see the different stages of that uh, throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament and then on to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Verse 11 tells us the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to 